This is Shane Gibson's podcast from ClosingBigger.net. Today we've got a return guest on the show, uh, Bruce Philp. He is author of The Orange Code, as well as the brand new book, Consumer Republic. And of course, he is an active consultant in the space as well. And I'm going to let him, of course, expand upon that uh, in the next few minutes. But hey, thank you very much for logging on again for today's discussion. It's a pleasure, Shane. Thanks for having me back. So uh, for those of those listeners who haven't uh, heard the podcast on the Consumer Republic, uh, maybe you might want to let us know a little bit about your new book and sort of the ethos and what it focuses on. Sure. Um, the book essentially argues for consumers rather than for business that brands are actually good for them. And uh, uh, it, it builds the case that, that where there are brands, there's choice, and where there's choice, the consumer is in control. And that's always been the case, although people, I think, resist the idea that uh, that, that brands might be you know, a, a good vitamin. Uh, I, I think it's always been generally true. What, what has changed in the last few years is that brands have become more important to corporations uh, even than technical competence has. And at the same time, the consumer has acquired more ability to influence the reputation of brands. And um, and so the book suggests that we, we, as a result, have more power than we've ever had and that we can use that power to, uh, to make the world a better place. The conversation very quickly tends to turn to social media in this context, which I think is uh, a little bit what we're here to talk about. And it is the simplest way, although not the only way, uh, to understand and how consumers can make corporations pay attention. Fantastic. And I think this is a kind of great segue, and I think this is, you picked up on my tweet the other day, and this is a, a, um, a sort of a result, this conversation result of a quick tweet. Um, I'm not your typical social media whiner. Uh, I don't go out there and, and rate every business I go into. Uh, one of the reasons why is I would hate for everybody who goes to my seminars to be rating me by the minute. Uh, <laughs> although some do, uh, but it was Groupon and it was, it was an ad, uh, you know, I thought this, uh, I thought this podcast could have been titled, you know, how not to market like Charlie Sheen and Groupon. But then I thought, uh, maybe we'll take a step back and, and just talk about why this tweet came about and, and what occurred. But it, it was a fact that, you know, a little while back Groupon had run some Super Bowl ads that many people found offensive. They, they took things like, uh, the plight of, of people in Tibet uh, and, you know, made fun of it, uh, saying, hey, you know, you might not be able to help them, but hey, you can get a, you know, a discount on Tibetan food today through Groupon. And, uh, you know, I think that this struck a chord of people as being insensitive and, and when going too far. Now, some people will argue the other way and say it was clever marketing and it was for a good cause. Uh, and many people said it was in bad taste. Uh, but one of the things that many people on the social media sphere, in the social media sphere, had commented on was, kind of Groupon's going against the grain of, of, I guess, kind of common or group thought today, which is a brand, if people complain about it, especially online, the key is to respond quickly and, and to really be empathetic uh, and human about it. Yet Groupon's response was not to respond at all uh, and then to later respond by saying they basically knew better than the people who complained. Now, they did delete their ad, but there was never any apology. Then we go forward a few weeks ago, actually about a week ago, and we see this ad that Groupon placed, uh, you know, suggesting that a great sleep aid is depression. 
and of course, many of us, <laughs> you know, looking at, you know, Peter Thomas, uh, who started the Todd Thomas Foundation after his son committed suicide, uh, around people understanding depression. And, and you know, I, I've read a lot into it. So for me, it struck a chord, uh, you know, knowing Peter and knowing what he's done. And, you know, and I kind of jumped out and made some comments, both on their Facebook page and, and on the actual ad they had done, saying, hey, guys, this is really off color and insensitive and this is really making me rethink whether I want to do business with you at all. So Groupon's response, of course, along with my post and a number of others, was just to delete our comments. <laughs> <laughs> now, that miraculously, these comments reappeared and were just disappeared due to technical difficulties, apparently, uh, several right. hours later after many people had screen captured them and were probably ready to blog about it. Um, but then your tweet came through, um, and it was really interesting to me, and it was, you know, what happens if people stop caring people stop reaching out to corporations using these brand new tools of engagement and just give up and i i guess you know what were your thoughts on that well i think what i watched you go through reminded me of similar experiences that i've had um in the space and ironically the experiences the negative ones that i've had didn't have much to do with corporations but mostly had to do with other people in the space um you know they're there has been a, uh, a tendency to sort of talk the talk of inclusiveness and conversation and, and uh, you know, the newly opened marketplace, and this sort of traces its roots back to the, you know, the clue train manifesto and the, the sort of power of conversation and the democratizing influence of social media over commerce and all that stuff. Um, but it all comes crashing to a halt when you post a comment, you know, on a website, and because that comment isn't flattering, the, the people who, um, who run the site despite being in the social media business, decide not to moderate it, um, as has happened uh, to me. Um, or the, the phenomenon that I bet a lot of people have observed, whereby, you know, I can get Guy Kawasaki to return a tweet to me, but I can't get some social media consultant in Salt Lake City with 20,000 followers to pay attention because my cloud score is not high enough. Um, you know, the, the concern that this raises for me is that there is a kind of hypocrisy in this and uh, a kind of cynicism that has presented itself very early in the history of, of, of social media. There's a piece of data in the Globe this morning that said that 3.4% of Canadians uh, are involved in Twitter, which I happen to think is a, a potentially very powerful channel. And you look at that 3.4% number and you apply it to the typical rate at which technologies tend to penetrate populations and you say, you know what, we're barely into the early adopter phase here. This is still very young and it's still getting... Um, is still being shaped. And that being the case, the idea that we should become so cynical so soon raises for me the specter that consumers might say, you can't believe anything you see in social media. Just you know, forget it. Go elsewhere. You know, it's fun, but it doesn't matter. I think that would be a great tragedy. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting is that there is a sort of not the, you know, I'm not going to harp too long on the social media crowd per se, uh, but one thing that, you know, we realize is that the early adopters, um, you know, and I look at a lot of the, uh, the bloggers in their basement scenario, you know, weren't actually all that social to begin with. <laughs> true. They weren't social people. They were, they were tech people uh, who were used to, you know, operating in the, the days of yesteryear, yesteryear under, you know, pseudonyms and Johnny555 and, you know, what they're poking and blogging and whatever else. Uh, and the curtain's only been recently pulled back that even humanized bloggers where they only kind of let you know who they were. 
Uh, and so I think there is a disconnect between people who are good at maybe creating content online and those that are truly, you know, as stealing, of course, uh, the title of my first book, sociable, <laughs> ones yeah. who are willing to actually connect in person <clears throat> and engage. Uh, now, with that said, I've also struggled as, as, a, as an author, as a blogger, as a podcaster, is when you open up the fire hose, so to speak, uh, you then have to respond to it. Uh, and it is a it is a traffic management issue, and you've got to kind of be prepared for that as well. Um, with that said, though, even talking to Guy Kawasaki about that, I mean, he gets hundreds of emails per day, and he says, you know, one of the things about being enchanting is sometimes just replying, I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that alone, just having Guy to actually say, hey, wow, he read my email. He says, I can't help you at this time. Uh, good luck with that. Uh, you know, that's something that simple, a common courtesy is, is missing. You know, and now, now going back to the, the kind of the Groupon scenario uh, where, you know, if I saw an interview with the CEO, like a one-hour interview on TV quite some time back, uh, and he did strike me as a, as a rather strategic fellow, uh, definitely motivated, uh, good business model, uh, I wouldn't label him, and maybe just from the interview, a highly open or social guy. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the, the or, an organization is often the reflection of the values and the subconscious of the leader. So I think that that trickles down in how they engage in the marketplace. So I, I do think it's leadership's responsibility to create these engaging, as Guy would say, enchanting and, and open brands. Um, now, with that said, I, I look at organizations and, and even let's talk of the let's let's pick on social media brands in general. These individuals who've written books or who've got twenty thousand followers and have a great blog on it. Right. What these do, people do is they leave the door open uh, in their marketplace and their niche for people that will engage. And I think that we can extend that to the brand. And you know, you, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but if I've got three automotive manufacturers, I've got Chrysler, uh, I've got GM, and I've got Ford, and, and, and GM sanitizes comments made on their blog and their Facebook page, and, and Chrysler rarely responds to tweets, yet Ford does. They do engage. They do say, yeah, you know, there are some problems with, you know, this latest hybrid, or, and by the way, we fixed this, and I'm sorry for your experience, and how can we help you, and, and we're working on this, and, and they're open to dialogue. Um, I think that what that does is that the more that GM and Chrysler stay in the, you know, sort of in their ivory towers, the more opportunities they create for competitors. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely true. The, the important thing about that sort of activity is that it's authenticating. Um, you know, it, it, obviously, if a company has to apologize too much, then it's got deeper problems than its social media strategy, and it probably needs to deal with them. But um, what I think corporations tend to forget is that there's a growing industry in social media surveillance whose purpose is to try to understand sentiment around a brand and 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 package it in such a way that that consumers can use it as a reference point when they're making shopping decisions um, so I think that if a brand makes no noise at all because it chooses not to talk that's actually not a safe strategy anymore it, it was two years ago but it isn't now um, and if it's only you know sort of feeding back positive comments then I think that things like Google social search are going to have trouble seeing that as being real and it's going to hurt the uh, you know the sort of commercially important face of all this, which is uh, is this brand uh, you know desirable to me to do business with? So, you know, the, the, this Soviet approach of not going to allow the publication of any bad news is 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 probably going to hurt them in the long run, and in the short run, as I say, it risks uh, it risks a sort of terminal consumer cynicism. Absolutely, and I think that this this consumer cynicism is. Um 
you know, something that is, you know, is a little disheartening at this point. And I think that there's something that's, there, I forget who wrote the blog post, and actually I think there's been a whole bunch of echoes around this, was the, the advent of the social media gatekeeper, that organizations right. now are starting to tighten up access to C-level executives on the social web. Uh, they're looking at ways to vet and route. Uh, and, I, and I see it as a, a, as a consumer, I have given up. For instance, uh, and I'll talk about you know, Rogers Communications. Uh, as a customer, uh, there's actually a few dealers that we're looking at you know, possibly doing some work with in the very early stages. So I may be shooting myself in the foot here by complaining about Rogers. <laughs> but I'm going to be straight. I'm going to be authentic about it. Is, uh, you know, there was a serious issue with uh, Rena, uh, and she, uh, who works with me, uh, and also lives with me, my girlfriend, and she had complained for months through traditional channels with Rogers in regards to this problem she had, uh, which was really them not honoring a warranty. She then went through every traditional channel, and I listened to her spend weeks on the phone, and finally I got frustrated and said, I'm tweeting this. So I tweeted, you know, basically talking about how Roger's service was awful, and I quoted someone in the customer care who said, uh, if you want to talk to my manager uh, or someone in senior office, you can find their information on the website. And that was <laughs> literally how they handled the customer complaint. Uh, and so I thought this was great fodder for Twitter, so I posted it, and of course... Uh, and I, what I expected is that someone in the Rogers office, uh, in their social media team, saw a guy with some clout uh, tweeting about the brand and immediately responded. And then, of course, uh, sent a, an email getting all the information. Uh, and then, of course, proceeded to feed us back into the system that we were complaining about. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and then the, and the complaint was never handled because we just got sent back to the same people with the same policies. And, and there was no humanity in their process. And, and I think that this is, I have, to a large degree, given up on tweeting or giving Rogers feedback because I know I'm going to be fed back into that monster. And yeah. so I think that, that brands that think that they can put a veneer on an old hierarchy by saying, hey, we're on Twitter or we're blogging or, hey, we're on Facebook, I think are ones that are going to find that their Facebook pages uh, are very quickly um, you know, profile graveyards. And I think yeah. that this is that they don't have too many chances to engage. Yeah, there's, there's no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, in the Rogers case is a difficult one because, you know, that's a category where we don't have a lot of choice. And so, you know, telecommunications companies tend to behave a little bit arrogantly because they know that, uh, there's not a lot at risk. And so, you know, I think it's notable that they that they did anything um, when you when you tweeted, and and, and I've had the same experience, uh, you know, from big companies like WestJet, and, and you know, a, a few weeks back, and and more recently, just this gym in Toronto that I go to that I tried to quit, and they kept charging me uh, dues, and I said something about it on Twitter, and you know, that kind of got them uh, uh, anxious, and and and, t and took action, and I think why this works is because our dissatisfaction can now be public. It didn't used to be the it didn't used to be that way. I mean, you know, before all these channels were available to us, we could only write letters of complaint to, you know, to customer service departments, and, and the rest of the world didn't know we were unhappy, and now they do. But what's really critical is that corporations right now are watching to see how much this matters, and consumers are watching to see how much this matters. And so if we show them these little dramas and they work out well and, it, and, and, and our, our voices get heard and, and some action gets taken, then we will teach the system and we will teach our culture that conversation is part of commerce. 
But if what we do is game the system to look good, and uh, or worse, we are we're seen to be able to get away with silencing those voices or or, or not doing anything and, and not having to endure any long-term consequences, we will teach the system that these social media channels are irrelevant and unimportant, and and corporations in particular are very very effective at um, knowing what they have to do to survive and what they don't. This moment will be over soon. Um, when it tips and becomes, uh, you know, truly a mass phenomenon, and we won't have another chance to, to build the habits that, that are going to make it work for us. I, I really like what you said. Conversation is part of of commerce, and I think that is such an important ethos. I, I think that that should be plastered on the wall of, of not just the marketing department, any company, but that should be above the CEO's desk. It should be in the customer service department. It should be in the tech department, in the production department, and even in the accounting department that's collecting those bills. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think that the, that the days of the transaction, IBM just recently came out with a study. Uh, I'm part of a, a social CRM kind of interest group online. And they came out with a study, and I, and I really think it was um, I don't know if they just skewed the data to work to their advantage or whatever else, but they stated that you know that the average consumer, and they were talking about, about engagement and how engagement is not as important because the average consumer follows a brand not for a relationship. They don't want to be the Ford's best friend. They just want a deal. I think they they really I think that study really misses the fact that um, in order to create trust, there has to be a conversation and a relationship. And that, uh, you know, that, that conversation, if it's not there, I think people are going to move towards the brands that will have a conversation with them. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true, and I think that that there will be a bit of a scale for that. I, I don't think we're likely to to seek engagement from the people who make our toothpaste uh, as much as we might from the people who make our golf clubs or or our you know. Uh, wine, <laughs> you know, things that we tend to have, you know, higher emotional involvement with in the first place. But it's nonetheless true that, um, that however weak those ties may be, to use, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's term, the, the, the fact that those ties are there tends to bond people to businesses and tends to, um, to bias them to stay rather than biasing them to leave. And, um, and this is where I think, uh, and organizations like Groupon are, are greatly at risk when they, you know, behave arrogantly in, in, the, in public. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's, you know, it's one thing to know your corporate vision, but there's another thing to graciously take feedback. And it doesn't yep. mean you have to take action upon it. Well, uh, and here's the funny thing about that. They ended up firing their agency, and, and they ended up saying you know, publicly this week that, that the lesson they learned was that you can't trust other people to, to manage your brand for you. So, so <laughs> at least intellectually, they seem to know what they did wrong, but they're not, they're not living it in, in simple exchanges like the one that you had. No, and I, and I think that, you know, back to hiring an agency, and this is something that, um, is that you can't... I have to remember who said this because it was someone who had given me feedback on this on Quora. I asked a question on Quora, and the question was, you know, can you outsource your social media activities to an agency? And the best response I found was the shortest one, and this person logged in, and, you know, what they said uh, was basically, how can you outsource authenticity? And I think that it was just a perfect, you know, I had written a long dissertation. And this guy just came in and said, hey, uh, how can you outsource authenticity? And I went, wham, like right, right on the nose. I thought, you know, that's exactly, um, you know, exactly what, uh, what we're talking about is that you can't really, you can't outsource that. You can outsource research. You can outsource the tech side of, of your social interactions for sure. 
Uh, you can outsource your social media monitoring to some degree if it's if it's got some rapid response built in, but you can't outsource your brand or, or your values, and I think that's what people are missing. No, I think that's true, <clears throat> and the, the, the idea that you can compare this phenomenon to, say, advertising is, is sort of absurd because consumers, I think consumers know that advertising is not a brand. Advertising is a thing a brand does. But if I'm having an exchange with you on Twitter, I actually think I'm talking to the person behind the curtain. I actually think I'm speaking to the organization itself rather than simply being entertained by that organization's behavior. And this is, a, uh, I think, a, a kind of a chasm that, that both the marketing communications industry and the marketing community have, have largely so far failed to cross. Yes. Um, it, it's uh, and, and, and as I say, we are we are in a moment, a probably short-lived moment, when they're going to have one chance to learn, um, and uh, and I you know I hope they take it. <laughs> I think uh, it's it is. I think although the, the space is forgiving, uh, evolution isn't, uh, and innovation isn't, uh, and so although we as the social crowd, so to speak, out there, and I say we as in consumers or business-to-business buyers. Uh, we're relatively forgiving of a brand that makes a mistake, uh, but what the market broadly isn't that forgiving uh, of those that fail to innovate and I think uh, and evolve. And I think that is you know the message is um, Tim O'Reilly talked about um, you know Web 2.0 and Web 3.0. It was a quote from uh, an article about South by Southwest, and I really liked it. He talked about the fact that Web 2.0 was was that realization of the goal of of real-time collaboration and, and knowing that, hey, I'm tweeting you and I'm connecting. And it was kind of the sense of awe that we've arrived truly at a, at a Web 2.0 era. And he talks about Web 3.0, and that's when we forget we're doing it. That's when right. all these things run in the background. And I think by the time consumers forget they're doing it, uh, if your brand is not connected to that social ecosystem, uh, you know, as you said, they're, they're irrelevant. Yeah, so that's true. Let's just quickly, and I know uh, this is, I don't want to, we could probably go on for this for hours, but for our listeners, um, <laughs> let's, let's wrap this a little bit up with maybe, um, I don't know, let's, let's, do, uh, let's do three tips from, from Shane and, and three tips from Bruce on, on what brands could do um, to, to truly uh, take advantage of this trend. Um, and I think uh, I'll, I'll just start off the top of my head. Uh, you know, you know. First one is is make a decision to socialize your organization to not make it about one person in your marketing department, but really open up those channels of, of communication uh, and be social. Um, you know, number two is to really understand the rules of engagement. Uh, things like don't delete. <laughs> uh, things like respond quickly. Uh, show humanity. Uh, show graciousness. Uh, and I think number three. Uh, a big one for them to take advantage of it uh, is to, uh, you know, stealing from Lynchpin and Seth Godin is to invest in, you know, enchanting people and, and, and hire the right people that, that understand community uh, to spearhead these things. So that's my three. What, tell me about your three. What's your three on, on what brands could do to uh, effectively take advantage of this trend and, and embrace the consumer republic? 
Well, you know, I hate to, to start off with something so obvious, but I think the first one is the, is, the, in, is to engage. Um, I think it was true two years ago that you could just stay out of this and be reasonably safe and let other people um, kind of learn your lessons for you, but I don't actually think that's an option anymore. Um, the, you know, the, what the web knows about a brand um, is, is increasingly being influenced by what ordinary people are saying about it, and that accrues directly to that brand's value. So, uh, you know, the first thing that I'd say is if if you aren't, if you don't have a strategy for this, if you're not actively engaged, you better get busy because it's no longer optional. Um, I think the, the the second thing that that has to change um, from a corporate perspective is that, is that we have to relearn marketing as an exercise in listening rather than an exercise in talking. Um, it's it, it incredible to me the extent to which um, marketers still think about message, still think about telling, still think about persuading, and still think about uh, you know every fiscal year as an opportunity to start over with a clean sheet of paper. Um, it, it, it isn't the case. We now uh, have to get very serious about listening. By one account, um, the social media surveillance business is going to be a billion-dollar industry in the next year or two. I think that says something about how important um, having your antenna up is. And the third thing, which I think people find a bit challenging but then uh, then comforting, is that what this is doing is revealing brands to be kind of narrative phenomena. So in other words, um, rather than a brand expressing itself in the marketplace through a series of selling messages, it expresses itself through a long continuum of behavior. And what we see in this is, is, is two things. One is that people have very short memories um, for for bad moments, um, and that might lull corporations into a false sense of security. Uh, you can look at a case like Toyota, for example, and say, geez, you know, they had this epically bad year last year, and yet they seem to have you know, walked away with hardly a scratch. Um, so, so maybe none, none of this stuff matters. And, and whereas the truth is, we don't remember the incidents, but we remember the feelings. And this is the way we understand the whole world. Um, and so what brands really now have to become is these constantly unfolding stories in which it's less important to get each thing perfect and more important to, to just keep going in the general direction you know, of your destiny, if you like. And so what, what I tell um, business audiences is go out there and do a million things. Go out there and say, say a million things. Be willing to make 100,000 mistakes because you're still going to get 90% of it right. And in the long run, that's how a great brand is going to be built. So it's this idea. So, so, so my three pieces of advice, again, would be First of all, engage. This isn't optional anymore. Um, secondly, you know, redefine marketing as a, as a listening business rather than a talking business. And thirdly, remember that your brand is a narrative phenomenon. It's more important to keep going against a given set of values and a given mission than it is to be tactically perfect. Well, fantastic. And I think that's... Uh... That for me is is very uh, crystallizing. Uh, it really makes sense for me. So I think that you know, from this perspective, for those listening, that uh, if you want to learn more uh, about the Consumer Republic, you can visit uh, brucephilp.com. That's B-R-U-C-E-P-H-I-L-P.com. Uh, I've really, Bruce, always enjoy your insights, and uh, I often it's. It's the context and what you put things and the way you describe it. I mean, it just, it really hammers it home for me. Uh, and that, that listening economy, and that listening marketing uh, is so vital. And it's something that, that I think even you go back to those people out there teaching social media aren't walking their talk enough. That is so important to listen. That's so true. So again, <laughs> thanks a lot for logging on. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Great. And this is Shane Gibson's podcast from closingbigger.net.